Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Huge political news this week as Donald Trump has made history, becoming the first president to be impeached twice by the House. The president was charged with incitement of insurrection, with 10 Republicans joining with Democrats to vote for impeachment. The next step is a trial in the Senate, but it looks unlikely that it will happen before Trump leaves office, leading to a lot of questions. We've seen so much happen last week. There was a storming by pro-Trump supporters on the Capitol building. This week we saw impeachment. Next week will be the inauguration of Joe Biden. And we're hearing about far-right groups making plans for protests and assaults before and after Inauguration Day. All 50 states are on alert for something that could be happening at the Capitol buildings. And of course, where Joe Biden will be inaugurated, security will be top-notch with Thousands and thousands of National Guard troops stationed there. For more on how the impeachment process all played out, we'll speak to Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. It's been a crazy seven days in Washington and really across the country. You know, it's interesting. You know, the insurrection of the Capitol happened seven days ago. And then seven days from now, a week from now, President-elect Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. So a lot happening. But in leading up to impeachment, obviously what sparked this was the insurrection. We saw that President Trump held that rally in Washington, D.C., telling the attendees of his rally to go up to the Capitol to voice their displeasure with the election results. And many interpreted his remarks as incitement. And it did appear that he did incite this group of rioters to go to the Capitol. Now, obviously, there were thousands of people to attend President Trump's rally, which was to essentially protest the Electoral College results. And then we saw that, you know, some of those people, a large number of them did storm the Capitol. When they stormed the Capitol, it was during the certification of the Electoral College vote. It had Senators Josh Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz essentially proposing to challenge the Electoral College results in states like Pennsylvania. So we saw that there was this essentially a lie going around that there was this widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. So during the certification process, these protesters stormed the Capitol, putting the lives of the vice president of the United States at risk, of the Speaker of the House of the United States at risk, as well as lawmakers in the chamber at that moment. So we obviously know that five people were killed as a result of these riots. So it was a very deadly insurrection. Now we've heard, obviously, a lot of these rioters have been charged. They have been apprehended by law enforcement. But today was President Trump term in the spotlight, and he was impeached for the second time. It wasn't a surprise. We knew that Democrats would have the votes. But what's getting a lot of attention is the fact that Republicans voted to impeach him, and including Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who is part of the GOP leadership in the House. Yeah, I mean, it's not a big number, but it's not an insignificant number either. And Liz Cheney, to that point, said there's never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. So obviously, all that has transpired was a big turning point in all of this. What are the next steps now? Because obviously, impeachment happens in the House, the trial happens in the Senate. Mitch McConnell said he's not going to call senators back early. So 
they're not going to come into session until the 19th, the day before Joe Biden becomes president. So this won't achieve anything in ousting President Trump from office. So anything that happens will happen after that. I think the most significant thing that could happen is that they vote to bar him from running for federal office again. I think that's really the biggest thing that could come of it. That's correct. And I think that kind of almost could maybe relieve a lot of Republicans like Liz Cheney or even minority leader Kevin McCarthy with having to deal with Trump at the top of the ticket. However, while President Trump may not be running for office, he very well could still be a force within the Republican Party. Remember, he still has a band of loyal followers. 75,000 people or roughly that amount of people voted for him in the election. So he still is relatively influential in conservative circles. However, the timeline of all of this could prove to be a headache for President-elect Joe Biden. So President-elect Joe Biden once he is sworn in as president, is probably wanting to go in and really implement his agenda and get started on COVID relief issues. He is wanting to get those $2,000 stimulus checks out to Americans. He's going to want to do his 100-day plan of getting those vaccines out to Americans and asking them to wear a mask for 100 days and making sure schools can open safely. He's going to want to focus on that. And a lot of that includes coordination with the Democratic-controlled House and Senate. However, that's going to be an issue, or it could be an issue, if Democrats are still working to carry out this impeachment trial in the Senate. We know that there are Republicans who would be open to the idea of going through with an impeachment trial. We know that Ben Sass has said he would look over the articles of impeachment. Mitch McConnell, notably, has not ruled out voting to convict President Trump. You know, I think a lot of these Republicans would really like to rid President Trump of the party. But there's going to be a lot of multitasking going on. Definitely. I mean, it's a historic day in the fact, as I mentioned, the only president to be impeached twice. I do hope that on the other side of this, we really do get some deep investigations into all the failures that happened when the siege happened at the Capitol building, because that's important. You know, uh, the political agendas aside and impeachment and Democrats versus Republicans, that needs to take a step back to understanding why there was a huge failure at the Capitol building. And as you mentioned at the end of that, too, What is the impact of President Trump going to be on the Republican Party long term? And for now, I mean, this kind of becomes his legacy. The end of his presidency is marked with all this. So a lot of stuff to go through still on all of it. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In other political news, California is battling the worst of the coronavirus pandemic right now and a slow vaccine rollout. Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a lot of criticism for his handling of the state. Newsom is also facing growing support for an effort to recall him, which got a boost after shutting down outdoor dining and a blunder of his own, getting caught eating out at a fancy restaurant while he was telling people to shelter at home. The effort itself has surpassed one million signatures. It's about two-thirds of the number that they need to force an election later this year. They have until March to get all of the signatures they need, And there's money behind this effort. There was a $500,000 donation recently from an Orange County donor who objected to Newsom's order limiting religious gatherings due to the coronavirus. For more on all the challenges that Governor Newsom is facing, we'll speak to David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. I think that this is primarily related to 
coronavirus and how big an impact it's had, especially in Southern California, as you point out, hospitals here are significantly overburdened, whereas in some parts of the state up north, not so much. And so I think the combination of the increase in caseloads and some of the vaccine difficulties have created some pressure on the governor, which maybe is unusual in a state as democratic as California is. For some time, Governor Gavin Newsom has uh, had a pretty good approval rating. President Trump is in office. He had kind of a foil there. Things are going to be changing once Joe Biden comes onto the scene. And tell me a little bit about this recall effort that's going on. This has been going on for some time now. I think the people that are petitioning this have about one million signatures so far to put this on the ballot. They still need a lot more to go. But tell us how this is all playing out. Yeah, and let's start with what you said about the approval rating, first of all. You know, the last public measure of Newsom's approval rating in the state was 60%, which is really good. And most people think it's still in the 50s, still really good. So the threat that Newsom faces right now is a prospective threat. It's a potential. It's not a, he's not yet off the edge or something. I don't want to overstate the case here. The recall is interesting because it has some money behind it. Governors in California get recall papers filed against them routinely. And the problem is you need a lot of signatures to do that and need a lot of money to get those signatures. So the fact that this group of opponents of Newsom has, yeah, they raised $500,000 from a donor a week or two ago, that's helped them to collect signatures. If they can raise some more money, there's a chance they get this thing on the ballot. Closures of businesses has been a huge thing. When the rule came down again that we had to shut down outdoor dining, people all over were just really angry with it. Restaurants again were closing. People's livelihoods were at stake again. People were losing jobs again. And to what I was seeing, kind of reinvigorated this recall drive. You know, just people not wanting to have businesses closed. And the criticism is there, right? Numbers are skyrocketing despite these closures. So I know that that was a, a big turning point. I think it was something like this. He will take blame and has taken blame from all quarters. So there are people who are upset about business closures. There are people who are upset that the state, in their view, wasn't restrictive enough. And then you just have people who are simply frustrated and they're not sure exactly why. And that's not a good position to be in if you're an incumbent politician. So that's the difficulty that he faces. Now, the political reality is if this recall gets qualified, you know, you're looking at an election many months down the road. So I, I think it's a likelihood that the electorate will be in a much different place in October or November than it is right now if Newsom can get the vaccine rollout turned around. What is the expectation that this recall drive will get enough signatures to be put on the ballot? The proponents put their chances at 80 to 85 percent, but that's the proponents. I think it largely depends on whether they can get a couple of big checks. If they can raise a couple million dollars, then yeah, they probably can do it because all it really requires is money to send out those solicitations. The chances of success at the ballot box, you know, if they actually get qualified, I think that's a much taller task. How has Governor Gavin Newsom and his team kind of addressed a lot of this criticism? Obviously, with the coronavirus, it's tough. You know, we're working our way through it. But some of this other criticism that he's been getting, how, how have they responded to all of this? Well, I think they're criticizing the Republicans who are opposing Newsom as being aligned with President Trump. And also there are complaints that anybody who's a target of a recall can make against people who are proposing recalls, which is that it's not respectful of a tradition where some people think maybe you don't use the recall just because you're frustrated with somebody, that those should be used in extraordinary circumstances of misdeeds. I think there's also an effort by their camp not to add 
fuel to the fire that they think if the governing work gets done, then these other things kind of resolve themselves and then pressure's reduced. Yeah, I mean, he did already go through quite a big blunder when, you know, he was urging people to stay home. And then, you know, he got caught at the French Laundry, a very high upscale restaurant. You know, we've heard this story a bunch now, but he's having had to have combat that, you know, a little bit of hypocrisy, people would say on that front, too. So, yeah, trying to lay low about some of those things is probably a good idea as well. The French Laundry was just a crazy bad mistake and, and probably more so for being the French Laundry than for being out. I think if he'd gone down to the corner takeout restaurant, <laughs> yeah. there wouldn't be any of these recriminations. But the fact that it was at the French Laundry, that you know, I mean, just it looked really bad. And we'll see how that plays out. The last public poll to be done on his public approval was done when he was still in the field when that happened. So I'd be curious to see what the next public poll looks like. I can't imagine that we're talking like double digit drops, though, because of that. And maybe I'm wrong, but that'll be a real key thing to look at. It's totally interesting. I mean, all eyes right now are in California, as I said, just with the exploding numbers that are going on, especially Southern California, the governor facing all these calls right now. So, yeah, just uh, interesting to see how he handles it, how the vaccine rollout changes and if anything gets better on that front. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you. As I mentioned earlier, the FBI is continuing to issue warnings about more mobs possibly heading to state capitals in the run-up to Joe Biden's inauguration. But what is the science behind mob thinking? And why do many people readily accept false information? Part of what promotes this thinking is that many people tend to trust sources of information rather than the substance with little fact-checking. For more on this, we'll speak to Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios. My colleague Allison Schneider and I talked to a bunch of experts in misinformation, cognitive psychology. And what we learned is that people have so much information coming at them, especially as more information moves online, that they need to rely on shortcuts or heuristics to be able to deduce fact from fiction. And that means that oftentimes people are not evaluating whether or not something is true or false based on the substance of an article or something they read. Rather, they're evaluating its validity based off of the source. And that becomes problematic in the Internet age, because if you have large swaths of the population following the same type of source and that source gets it wrong or intentionally misleads them, well, then a large swath of the population is going to be misled. And in context of what happened last week with the Capitol riots, you had so many people saying that they thought the election needed to be not certified because it was stolen. They were echoing a lot of the things that they had heard on fringe right forums and from Donald Trump himself, clearly they had been using those types of outlets and perhaps Donald Trump as a shortcut or a heuristic to determine whether or not something was true or false. And, you know, the president is a master of branding and repetition even. For those people that voted for him, liked what he was doing with the country, they do trust him. So he's going to be that shortcut for them, right? They're going to believe in what he says. And when he's constantly railing against the media saying everything is fake news, telling everybody, don't believe this, don't believe that the election was stolen. Trust me, we won this thing. That's what they're going to believe. So really fact checking, people won't even take the time to do any of that. As you mentioned, there's so much media, there's so much stuff being thrown at people. They're going to take those shortcuts. 
Absolutely. And they should. I mean, it's human. It's actually animal nature. We're not the only mammals that do that. Scientists say that this is a mammal instinct to use and rely on shortcuts to help make decisions. And it's the wise way to go about you know, living your life. You want to be able to fact check everything individually, but there's no way you can do that with all the hundreds of pieces of information that you encounter. The problem actually is just that people are trusting the wrong sources to rely on for their information to fact check things for them. And that's where we have a big problem. Now, when we talked to some of these experts, they said that there are a few key attributes of things that people look for when they're trying to determine what they should use as a shortcut to figure out whether or not something is true or false. Now, one of the big things they said was race and things like religion and your identity. Those things people find they can trust in other people. And so when they need to find guidance about who are they going to trust to help them discern facts and fiction, they're looking at people who look like them, that sound like them, that have a similar background to them. And that's why you might have noticed that at that Capitol insurrection, quite honestly, a lot of people were white. There were some people who had been echoing some of the white nationalist rhetoric that Donald Trump had been championing throughout his presidency, or rather hadn't been disavowing throughout his presidency, it all kind of feeds into this mob mentality of everyone trusting him because he's not only somebody who looks like them, but he's somebody who's been dog whistling about white supremacy for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of older people there, people that fit into kind of the media consumption group that he targets and everything. So all of this kind of folds into it together. So then how do we break ourselves of all of this. I know you mentioned in a lot of this has to do with following people that are like us and everything, but you mentioned just a bit ago that maybe some people aren't believing trusted sources. Well, I think a lot of people would say to that, well, don't tell me who to trust kind of thing. So, so how do we break ourselves of some of these cycles of mob thinking? Well, one of the biggest things is create a society that invests in digital literacy. So starting from young age, you understand and you learn in school about how to trust sources online. And that can go a long way so that people can pick up digital literacy skills as they move into their adult life and need to make decisions around things, not just about politics and the news and current events, but honestly about their own life, whether or not they should be eating a certain way, whether or not they should be managing their finances a certain way. You know, we often think about this in terms of politics, but one could argue it's just as damaging if people are consuming false and misleading information that could lead them to do something bad for their health. I mean, the best example of this could be the Tide Pods social media challenge that went viral earlier this year. You had a lot of kids that were eating Tide Pods like candy, thinking it was funny, without realizing that just eating a teeny bit of it could kill you. That's an example of the fact that not enough kids were reading good sources of information about it, and not enough parents were reading good sources of information about the trend that was happening. That's so important, that digital literacy. You know, as you mentioned, when people are using heuristics and these kind of shortcuts to believe something and, and really not go through and fact check and all that. And we're so inundated with various kinds of information, let's say on the internet, it's tough to filter all that out. And yeah, you couldn't lead yourself to believe something that is not right or is not good for you, as you mentioned, for your health and all. It's just an interesting look into how people gather together and then when they take it too far, things like the Capitol Hill riots go on like that. So definitely something to keep monitoring on all of this. Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.